0: everybody it's Elias Krim and we're back at Dorothy's place and I'm here with my co-pilot Pete Davis hi Pete
1: doing great how are y'all doing
0: good good all right let's see we're gonna be talking about uh, some some high-level stuff today with a policy guy Matt Brunig uh, the new president of something called 3p we're gonna to get to that in just a second um, I want to also mention uh, in our accustomed way, we do an organization and a book. And last week here in my little town of uh, Valparaiso, Indiana, just south of Chicago, I went to hear a guy named Robert Egger who had founded something, Pete, you may remember this, It was a thing called the DC Kitchen. Um, and he then in later years went out and did something called the LA Kitchen, which is a community. Kitchen, uh, and they are all about food power. Basically, this guy, Robert Egger, a very interesting uh, activist, realized that one of the ways you can convene people and change things is through food. Uh, their mission statement, uh, the LA Kitchen, that is, lakitchen.org, is as follows. LA Kitchen believes that neither food nor people should ever go to waste. By reclaiming healthy local food that would otherwise be discarded, training men and women who are unemployed for jobs and providing healthy meals to fellow citizens, LA Kitchen empowers, nourishes, and engages the community. Um, They are using food for job training. So we got people doing reentry, men and women. They are also very savvy. Robert Edgar is very savvy, having been in the nonprofit world, uh, in that he wants to move beyond the usual metrics. They are trying to figure out how to do a deeper dialogue around food, hunger, and poverty, which is very interesting. They are also localists. So one of their values is that uh, wealth derived from the community should be reinvested locally. Um, They also, as they put it, don't apply shallow overhead practices. They challenge the status quo, providing all employees with a living wage and opportunities to invest in their own future uh, retirement. They do some advocacy uh, and they aim for being very transparent. Uh, Not all nonprofits do that. Uh, And they're also great about sharing their solutions. They take a very sort of open source approach. So this guy's done TED Talks, Robert Edgar, um, and it's a very striking, uh, sizable organization with a big board and multiple programs that they've got running, but uh, they have figured out uh, a lot of things. So that's the LA Kitchen.
1: That's amazing. Um, So there's an LA Kitchen and where's the other DC Kitchen?
0: I think there was a DC Kitchen. I don't know if that's still up and running, if he handed it off to someone else. But that's where he sort of uh, first uh, invented some of these models and then went out to L.A. and took it, I think, even wider. This is
1: great. A lot of people come into the cause through food. And so I think that's an exciting uh, to find any organization based around that. It's the oldest. Uh, I always believe that uh, uh, Nicholas uh, Taleb has this line where he says (laughs) uh, that things that have lasted longer will last longer, yes. um, so yes. uh, I think it's called the Lindy Principle or something, and uh, eating together is the <laughs> oldest possible thing,
0: so That's nice. uh, That's
1: it's nice. always a good entryway in the community. That's right. <laughs> cool. Uh, great. Well, I have a book, um, and the book is heavy. You know, we talk about religion and politics here, since Matt Brunig is going to talk a lot about politics coming up. Um, I decided to go heavy on religion um, on my book selection, and my book is okay. called "Moral Wisdom" by James F. Keenan, who is a Jesuit priest. Um, je- he happens to be uh, the Jesuit priest in Somerville, Massachusetts, where I go to church, um, and he 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 gave the single greatest uh, homily. I've ever heard hmm. uh, after the election when people really needed a good one and he knocked it out of the park. Um, and I'll tell a bit about what he said in it. Um, and then I'll tell about this book. Cause I just bought all of his books after I went <laughs> home from there. Um, I said, who is this priest? And then I found out, Oh, no wonder it was so good. He's like a professional writer on Catholic wisdom. Um, so his homily was about how uh, the Beatitudes are not taken seriously enough and how they layer on top of each other and how they're a righteous call for what we should do. So he uh, talked about, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's really talking about that. You should center your life on the people that are on the outside that are marginalized. He says poor in spirit based on the translation or people who are not, uh, kind of empowered, who are not in the core. And then the big thing that blew my mind is that second line he says layers onto the first it's not a random hodgepodge blessed Hmm. are those who mourn for they shall be comforted it wasn't about mourning it wasn't about people who are sad or even people who are grieving it's about people who are mourning for the poor in spirit Hmm. Um, it's a challenge to everyone else who is not the poor in spirit to keep on the front of your mind the fact that there are people that are poor in spirit. Um, and it said, you will, if you enter discomfort, um, like you will be given comfort later, but you should, enter. you should make yourself uncomfortable for the poor in spirit. It's not, um, uh, it's, he says, you know, the bad beatitudes are like, Oh, you know, people who are down, people who are grieving, people who are feeling weak, like uh, everything's gonna be okay. He goes, no, it's a righteous call for what we should pay attention to and what we should work on. Um, And then my favorite one, and this is what goes in, is talked about a lot in moral wisdom, is he goes, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. He defines mercy, and this is really uh, burrowed into my heart and changed my life, is he defines mercy as being willing to enter into the chaos of others' lives and he said so much of uh of the problem in the world today is that we are indifferent to other people and we feel that we rarely say like oh i don't want no one really says oh i'd rather that homeless person not be taken care of you know most of us want them to be taken care of it's that we say oh man, like that seems like a lot of chaos right now and I'm having a day where yep. I yep. can't handle it. And he says, the call of the merciful is the call to bring some of others' chaoses into your life. And he goes into this a lot in moral wisdom. He talks about, um, he, he just, he makes you rethink all these old uh, platitudes that you might have uh, memorized and internalized but not really unpacked yet. Um, my favorite being... Um, he has a whole chapter on the story of how what we learned from the Holocaust. And he says, we think too much about Hitler and we don't think enough about this man who was an ar- a Nazi architect and engineer. Albert
0: Speer. Hated-
1: yeah, Speer, who hated the Nazis, thought they were disgusting, oh, but, wow. yeah, yeah. but worked for them anyway. He says, yeah. we're much more likely to be Speer than we are to be Hitler. So let's stop telling kids don't be Hitler. They'll naturally not be Hitler. Tell them don't be spear. Wow. You know, and that takes a little bit of bravery and nonconformity and mercy of uh, mm. being willing to not do the comfortable thing. Um, mm. So that's all in moral wisdom, chock full of great stuff. James F. Keenan, underappreciated uh, Jesuit priest that I think the whole country should know about.
0: Fantastic, we'll definitely check that out. Very good, very good. All right, we, uh, we have talked to, he might say, the better half of uh, Matt and Liz Brunig uh, a month or two ago, and that was great fun. Uh, I'm just thinking we're maybe one of the few podcasts that is interested in both sides of this couple, <laughs> the, dream, the dream team, as Pete called them. Um, Matt is the president of something called 3P, the People's Policy Project. He had previously been uh, an attorney at the uh, National Labor Relations Board, and he had also worked as a policy analyst at Demos, uh, the think tank, and Matt specializes in work on inequality, poverty, and welfare systems. So now we're gonna have a chat with Matt Brunig. Okay, so we're talking to Matt Brunig. Matt Brunig is the new head of a group called 3P, And a great way to begin, I think, would be to ask, uh, Matt, what is 3P?
2: Uh, 3P is a people's policy project. It is a new think tank that was launched, uh, I guess, formally in May, but but, uh, practically in August of this year. And it is a think tank dedicated primarily to socialist and social democratic economic ideas uh, and it is a, the only crowdfunded think tank uh, right now. All of our uh, money comes from uh, monthly donors pledging five to fifteen dollars a month on the Patreon crowdfunding platform.
0: Oh yeah, very good, very good. That's
1: that's wonderful. I am a donor, um, and and I encourage any of our listeners to uh, donate. And and I think by the end of this conversation, all of our listeners will want to. Um, Since we're, before we jump, you know, we like to eventually jump in on what led you here, but before we get to that, since we are talking about 3P at the start here, I'd love uh, to get your take on the think tank world in DC and what inspired you to uh, launch 3P instead of, say, trying to join another uh, think tank. You've had experience with think tanks in the past, and the... Left of center think tank world is in the news recently um, Mm -hmm. because uh, folks at the antitrust folks at the New America Foundation uh, have all been severed from the foundation in mass, most likely due to the fact that Google uh, did not like what they were writing and they were funding New America Foundation. So I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on that incident and on uh, the think tank world in D.C. generally.
2: Right. So <clears throat> the New America incident, like you said, uh, there's a, a man at New America it used to be named Barry Lynn who had a small group called the open markets, uh, division. And Barry Lynn has been writing about antitrust for decades. He was kind of a, a voice yelling in the wilderness for many years. No one really seemed to pay attention to him. And, uh, In the last few years his ideas have really kind of caught fire and has started to gain support among academics who have uh, uh, been doing some studies that tend to confirm some of some of the claims he had been making previously without without as much empirical support and the Democratic Party have has recently adopted antitrust as a big part of their 2018 campaign strategy Hmm. and, and you know, his influence was growing and growing and growing, and and then he, he said something very uh, negative about Google. Uh, the European Union had uh, just uh, issued a ruling about uh, Google in, in the context of antitrust, and uh, I believe he praised that decision, and, and that set off a chain of events that eventually led to his ousting. Um, and I guess it should be noted that Google is a, is a major funder of New America. It's been described as the Google think tank at various times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Google CEO or maybe former CEO Eric Schmidt is on the New America board and uh, I think is the biggest donor to New America, even individually. So a pretty suspicious uh, set of events and, and some actual emails where, where people were not so careful about uh, hiding it were leaked uh, that tend to confirm that that's what happened. So, you know, that's a very troubling incident, but that is not, uh, I would say, I would say that event is kind of uncommon, but that that type of influence is not uncommon.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, but it normally manifests itself in the form of self-censorship where people, they understand... You know where where the boundaries are, and, and most people they don't like to rock the boat. Uh, they want to get along. They're concerned about their own careers, and is it really worth it, and that sort of thing. Um, that that tends to be a more of a, a soft coercion uh, that limits the range of discourse uh, in think tanks. You
0: know, Matt, um, I think I think you might be setting up a very interesting new model with a kind of. I don't know if you'd be comfortable calling it a crowd-funded um, think tank, but tell us a little bit about your your goal and the vision for for this thing. If everything worked out, wh- you know, where would you like to go with 3P?
2: Yeah, I mean, we're trying to do uh, what basically what other think tanks already do, uh, changing it up a little bit. You know, maybe do some videos, maybe try to <laughs> have a somewhat more of a mass appeal mm-hmm. because. The think tank does have to sustain a, a crowdfunding base, and mm-hmm. that, that means that on some level, I have to produce things that are popular and shareable and interesting uh, to, to ordinary people <laughs> as opposed to other think tanks, which, which you know, uh, so long as they're uh, influencing the right kinds of people can can more or less be discreet and uninteresting to, to most people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we're working on videos. We're going to have our first video next month, I think. Uh, like animated videos, interesting shareable, shareable content, um, and writing posts and stuff that are more shareable than what other think tanks put out. But, but you know, m- most of the money I'm trying to put aside for for bigger papers, funding sort of serious academics that will could provide policy support for ideas that are Mostly uncovered by the other think tanks. So one example of that right now would be single payer, which is picking up steam politically, but still every um, left of center think tank is is holding out and not uh, dedicating any resources to uh, you know the implementation details. So that that that's kind of we hope to be able to fill those gaps where where other think tanks are are uh, unwilling.
1: And I I feel like you're breaking through a 22 for left policy because, you know, the politicians say, oh, I can't put forth this bill. We don't have any wonks working on it. And the wonks say, oh, I can't work on it because no politician is putting forth anything like it. So someone's got to start somewhere. And um, I think Mm -hmm. folks like Bernie started saying, well, let's talk about the ideals even if we don't have the wonks yet. And folks like you have said, let's start working on it even if we – don't have all the politicians yet, and that's how you make something new happen, so uh, that's wonderful. Uh, I'd love to um, ask you now our classic question, which we like to ask people, um, which is, you know, we're a a lefty Christian uh, uh, group, Solidarity Hall, that runs this, and so we're very interested in uh, people's—we think morals, politics, and religion, and economy kind of all flow together. They're not— as separate as people think they are and i'd love to hear the origins of your uh of what led you to be the type of person that wants to work on something like this your moral political economic and religious origin
2: yeah so (laughs) (laughs) that's a a big question and uh (laughs) it's it's funny because people ask uh i don't know if you find yourself in certain political circles there's there's always that that question of uh you know, you know when, when did you sort of get interested in this when did you start becoming politically active and and why and and usually people tell stories and they, they seem a little bit uh too neat you know I, I think people kind they they kind of backfill some of their uh some <laughs> of or origin stories about you know oh I saw this. This thing and it really spoke to me, and and that's how I became this way. Um, So I'll try to avoid that, but I think it's very it's very hard to uh, you know people try to make order out of out of disorder in their brain. Um, But you know, I grew up lower class in Texas. Um, I lived uh, with single mother for most of my life, Um, and she was uh, worked at a retail store in the mall. Did not make very much money. Um, worked, uh, cleaning houses on the side. Uh, my dad, who lived separately, but was, was present, uh, was a forklift driver for his whole life and, and still is. Um, and so, you know, a working class upbringing, uh, uh, poor on some, some years poor, other years, you know, just, just above the line. Um, and so, you know, that, I guess maybe primed me to some degree to, uh, being receptive to to these ideas uh, in high school, I joined the, the the debate team, and we had to learn a lot about you know political theory and political ideas uh, in order to really you know participate successfully in that uh, in that project. Uh, and so I kind of gravitated towards more uh, left wing ideas, more more provocative ideas, uh, partially I guess because they were uh, you know, uh, it spoke to, to me, but also because they're just kind of interesting and fun to to argue and and debate. And so I, you know, I became pretty pretty left wing in in high school as a result of that. And I went into college and I uh, studied philosophy and went on that same track. And uh, in addition to studying in college, I worked for uh, Ralph Nader for for a summer, and I worked for Dennis Kucinich. And I worked uh, with Jobs with Justice, a community labor organization. Huh. And then I went off to law school and uh, to become a labor lawyer. And I, for my summers in law school, I worked at Machinist Union. Then I worked at SEIU. And I, I came out of law school and I got in on at the NLRB for a two years honor honors program. And still pushing that labor law track and. You know, the whole time, still kind of interested in that labor-left politics. Um, and then now I'm, you know, have my think tank, so.
0: Cool, cool. Let's see, Matt, <laughs> I wanted to— You uh, we- had a socialist phase before. Oh, you go first, Elias. Well, right. <laughs> we got to get this down, the handoff. You know, I'm just thinking, Matt, we've, we've been watching the, the news lately and thinking about—I'm just saying to Pete— Uh, You know, with all of the uh, devastation around the hurricane, not to get too topical, but, you know, the question for the new administration and the current occupant, as I call him, has to do with his uh, proposition of some kind of an infrastructure program. Um, You know, I wonder if now one of the uh, one of the uh, priority items on the policy list is figuring out uh, how do we get to this uh, jobs and infrastructure program. Uh, you know, given the current uh, catastrophe in Texas and Florida.
2: Yeah, that's, yeah, I mean, that the infrastructure thing is is interesting because, you know, there seems to be agreement on the very highest level of, uh, you know, $1 trillion infrastructure plan. That was both what, what Bernie was saying and what Trump was saying. But if you look at Republican proposals, they're, it's really like a one hundred billion dollar uh kind of tax credit
0: mm-hmm. type
2: setup that is supposed to induce up to one trillion dollars of private infrastructure development in the form of toll roads and stuff like that. Um so I mean I I don't think that I don't I don't know. I don't I don't feel like that's probably going much of anywhere, uh, because it's it's not in line with what most people think of when they think of uh, infrastructure spending. So, yeah. uh, you know.
0: Well, so I was also gonna ask you, let's see, Pete, it's your turn, go ahead. No, you go, last. Um, I wanna know, Matt, are you also working on a question that uh, we're interested in a little bit at Solidarity Hall, which is debt, debt jubilee, and policies around that? Have you written about that? I think you have right
2: yeah, that was a thing a few years ago I mean maybe it still is a thing but it, it 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 was really a thing a few years ago um and I wrote a little bit about it um mostly i guess skeptical uh I think the issue i think that is a, is a bit of a a bit of an uh, odd uh focus because Debt is a is is a complicated uh, mm-hmm. uh, financial category because, in fact, the people who have the most debt are also the people who are the wealthiest
0: mm-hmm.
2: people. Uh, debt is positively correlated with income, positively correlated with wealth, which anyone who has a mortgage would be able to understand. You know, if you're the more affluent you are, the, the bigger mortgage you can get, and the bigger house you tend to live in. Uh, and that 's just true up the ladder, so insofar as debt is often used to acquire assets, just getting rid of debt doesn't necessarily have a that much of a net progressive um, um, swing in terms of net worth. I mean it's true that the people who hold the debt are also very affluent and probably even more out uh, the distribution of of debt assets is probably even more skewed to the top than the distribution of debt itself. And so there probably is some net swing. But what you find is, you know, the poorest people have almost no debt because they can't get credit. So I I found it a little bit of a strange uh, position, maybe if it was modified to uh, an unsecured debt jubilee. Because then you would you would knock out you know uh, uh, debt used to buy uh, assets um, that that might that might be a more interesting uh, mm-hmm. an interesting idea.
1: Um, one quick question about your upbringing before we dive further into policy: um, Why do you think you know? It seems like some people there was a period where every you know eighteen nineteen year old flirted with. Uh, libertarianism. You know, Ayn Rand's very popular among 17-year-olds. They stick with it. Some like Paul Ryan stick with it for a very long time. Um, and But there's also a possibility that people, when they're younger, could get into socialism or get into these uh, this practical socialism that can be achieved in America in the next uh, few decades. Um, what do you think accounts for what makes someone go one way or the other because it's surprising to hear of a Texas teenager uh, getting excited about left ideas and not say getting excited about libertarianism and you're involved mm-hmm. on the internet a lot, so I'm sure you see a lot of people kind of uh, coming coming up and discovering their political identity so you might have some insights into
2: this right yeah well when I was coming up, you know it was uh, two early 2000s and I didn't really even have the internet. I mean, we were not – we didn't have a whole lot of money, and the internet wasn't a, a sort of a must at that point in time. So so the internet was not a, a great influence uh, on me. Um, I, one one theory I have floated, just, just a kind of random thought I've had before with no – I haven't looked into it is there might be some aspect of just, uh, you know uh, – iconoclasm or, or I, I don't want to say contrarianism, rebelliousness, that sort of thing. And, and that might uh, turn on, on where you happen to be in the country and, and what the people around you are like. So in Texas, you know, the, if, the, if the prevailing norm is a kind of cons- uh, economically conservative or almost libertarian ethos, then, you know, if you, if you want to kind of mix it up, then, then you turn more to the left. Whereas if you maybe you grow up in the, the Northeast or something or California, maybe you, you turn more to the right, um, you know, just to, to be different and be interesting. Um, I, I don't know that that, well, I, you know, no one would say that that's what personally motivated them. Uh, and I don't consciously think that that's what motivated me. But, but you know, you never know.
0: Uh, you know, Matt. Matt, there's an old joke that uh, libertarians are people who don't have children.
2: <laughs> well, you know, in Texas, well, I remember when I was in high school uh, that the libertarians were basically, I would say, <laughs> the, the high school libertarians were were really Republicans who yeah. Yeah. were yeah. not interested in culture war type stuff. That that was really the whole thing, and and especially you know. Uh, with, with gay marriage and that sort of thing becoming a very, uh, you know, popular, popular movement, uh, a lot of distancing among teenagers from Republicans who were seen as, you know, very anti-gay. So libertarianism was a way to, to, to be a Republican without that kind of baggage, uh, mm-hmm. social baggage in mm-hmm. high school.
1: To, um, to jump to- at some... Uh, Elias, you go. Sorry about that.
0: Oh, no problem. You know, um, another interesting thing about um, the work you're doing, Matt, and the way it ties into uh, a book I was looking at that I know you're probably aware of, The Color of Law, Richard Richard, uh, Rothstein's book on uh, housing policy and his amazing kind of laying out of the way that one of the great social engineering schemes of modern times has been segregation. So conservatives are not used to thinking about social engineering in terms of uh, racial matters, but he's really quite uh, fantastic in laying out the history um, here and and, you know, kind of excavating, uh, you know, the background, starting from uh, the Roosevelt administration forward all the way through urban renewal and public housing and and all of that. you know, does your work also tie into issues around that kind of history and housing and uh, policy along those lines, the whole the whole suburban conundrum, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I haven't done a whole lot on housing. I, I have done a lot. Previously, when I worked at uh, the Demos think tank, uh, I did a lot around racial wealth disparities. Uh, and obviously, housing is one aspect of, of that. Uh, so... Yeah, I've spent quite a bit bit of time on that um, and thinking about what to do about it. And, you know, I have some ideas. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go go into them in, in too much depth. But, uh, you know, I think housing the 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 mainstream strategy on how to deal with some of those wealth differences is to say that, you know, we should try to encourage more homeownership among. Uh, non-white people because that's a big aspect of middle class white wealth and also a big aspect of the wealth that does exist in communities of color. But I tend to find that that's a little bit uh, poorly reasoned because the, the problem with with housing assets, which uh, is detailed in, in that book and elsewhere, is that Housing assets owned by people of color do not appreciate at nearly the rate yeah. of housing assets owned by white people. So if you, if, if you focus on that asset class, you're kind of uh, you're, you're getting on a treadmill that you're never you're never going to get to the other side of, of that problem. Uh, so it might make sense to, in fact, focus on other asset classes that do not have that same racial disparity, you know, uh uh, a, a stock of 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 walmart is is gonna pay the same dividend no matter who owns it uh which is not true for uh for a house yeah. mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. uh to ask another macro policy question when I look at uh left wing twitter today uh especially after the election, it sometimes feels like it's nineteen twelve again because we have uh you know the nineteen twelve election had three progressives. All running on different forms of progressivism and it was clearly at a time of great economic change and you know Teddy Roosevelt was proposing we need large nationalism to fight the large trusts. Others were saying break up the trusts. Others were proposing different things. Um, And so I'd like to give you four uh, clusters I've seen and I'd love to hear if you think we should just push on all of them or if you think some are better than others. um, there are the universal basic income people um, that just say, you know, we need to just redistribute uh, like uh, capital. There's the Matt Stoller antitrust folks who say it's all about corporate power and we need to break up uh, the large monopolies. There's the labor power folks who say all we need we just need to like strengthen unions again and unionize the service and healthcare economy. Um, and then there's the like modern monetary theory folks that say, "Oh, you can't do UBI, but you can do a jobs program, um, and we can have much more. We can uh, spend a lot more on a jobs program than we could on a UBI." Um, so I'd love to hear jobs program versus UBI versus unionization versus antitrust, or why not all? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that as one of the uh, kind of uh, big thinkers in that on in one of those.
2: Yeah, so I think that's a good taxonomy of of where people are, Um, and they they do join to some degree. I would say that the antitrusters are are often interested in job guarantee to some degree. Um, And yeah, I I suppose you could do them all. I mean, I think you have to – it's useful to think about it in terms of what problems you hope to solve. So the antitrust people, there are all sorts of problems. I mean, every one of these – uh, areas will say that basically every social problem could be solved by their particular uh mm-hmm. issue you know so like a job guarantee will be like well we can fix poverty we can fix uh, you know community decay we can fix uh, we can get around uh, anti-welfare tendencies and and uh, we can you know fight inequality and so on and and then the antitrust people will say, well, we can we can fight inequality this way by breaking up the power of uh, corporations and, and so on down the line. But um, I think it is useful somewhat to, to, to divide out different problems, right? So the first problem I would say is wealth inequality, which is, you know, the distribution of assets, whether they're stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever else. And that problem is only, I think, solvable through some kind of concerted effort to, if not socialize wealth, at least spread it out to, in some way. Uh, and I've, I've written some stuff at um, People's Policy Project about how to do that um, through creating social wealth funds, which are just like pension funds, but instead the state owns, you know, the wealth, not for pension purposes, but for purposes of paying out a dividend or something like that um, to everyone. And this exists in Alaska already. They own
0: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, a a pretty large wealth fund, and every year, you know, they figure out what the return on the wealth fund is. It's usually, you know, in the few thousands of dollars per person, they pay it out as a dividend. So that, that, I think, is the only of the four that really deals with wealth ownership directly. The second issue then is sort of income inequality. And obviously the, the wealth fund solves that to some degree because it spreads out the dividends. Um, but that, that's where you really get into some of the antitrust and basic income type uh, proposals. The antitrust people will say uh, corporations have concentrated power so much that they're able to extract a lot more of the national income than they used to be able to. So previously, maybe they could extract uh, 30% of the income each year, and that would go out to pay dividends and profits and that sort of thing. Now it's more like 40%. And if you really want to fight, uh, if you really want to you know, fix income inequality, that, that's really a good place to start, is to get that, that 60% that goes to labor and bring it back up to 70% where it used to be. Um, and so antitrust will, will fix that, will fix that issue. And they seem to have, you know, there are some studies that definitely show that concentration has contributed to that problem, um, but then likewise empowering labor to just directly demand that it's going to get it 70% at the bargaining table would also solve that problem. Um, in other countries like the Nordic countries, you tend to have fairly large companies relative to, you know, the size of the economy and the way that they make sure that labor gets what it's due is through union organization, not through antitrust necessarily. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's a long and winding uh, path to say that, uh, to say that these are all different approaches to this, to, to fighting these, these bigger problems. And they're not mutually incompatible with one another. Personally, I would say um, empowering labor and reducing wealth inequality directly are the most important of the two. Um, but not to say the others aren't aren't useful as well.
0: Hmm. Um, Matt, you know, I was thinking, I wonder if part of our struggle uh, is the um, old dilemma in this country of really not having any kind of industrial policy. And we notice this mostly, uh, I guess, reading books like Viking economics, well, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. Um, I haven't actually read this yet, but I've read around in it. I, I wonder, you know, can, how far can we get without an industrial policy? And what else can, um, can we get uh, in terms of lessons from the Scandinavians? On these issues?
2: Well, I mean, so industrial policy is usually used to maintain a certain sectoral composition of the uh, economy. So, you know, I want the manufacturing sector to be fairly big. So I put a lot of, you know, governmental energy into maintaining that sector Mm -hmm. and not letting it wither away. Like, that's one. one approach but the, the net reason why industrial policy is supposed to be helpful um, ultimately is that it maintains high value industries um, in in your country and that is a somewhat easier task if you're a smaller country because you know if i'm a 10 20 30 million person country it's conceivable that i could have one sector be uh, one high value sector be a huge portion of the economy, yeah. and then I import, you know, cheaper, uh, lower value sectors. Mm-hmm. And you see this with Switzerland, I, I would say mo- most famously, which has a very large financial sector. Um, and, but that wouldn't be possible for other countries. You couldn't have a financial sector that is as big a part of the economy as it is in Switzerland in the US. Yeah. because the US is so much bigger it would, it just there's not enough finance that needs to be done in the world for, for that the size of a sector. Uh, so I think meddling with sectoral composition is is a lot harder to do for a bigger country um, and then the real net benefit of that is supposed to be that you know the national income is is a lot higher because we have these higher value industries making up a larger. Uh, Share of our of our economic output but we have a very high income that that's not really a problem that we we face our national income per capita is is one of the highest in the world. I think the the highest after after Norway um, and and some you know really small micro states. Um, So I, I don't view it as as key as as others do for that purpose. Um But I think other people will emphasize the you know importance of maintaining certain kinds of jobs in society, and I think that 's probably the better argument is, is' really not that sectoral composition is is holding holding back the national income, but that certain kinds of people are are just better at manufacturing jobs or or manual manual labor jobs and and trying to incorporate them into uh service sector economy is has not uh, played out very well. Um that, that I think is probably the more compelling mm-hmm. argument at this point. Though mo- most people are a little bit reluctant. They don't like to put it that way where where they want to say something like, and I could say this very directly, there's no way my dad who has drive who's who's driven a forklift his whole life could, could go into customer service. He's just not
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know he's just not wired that way. Uh, and maybe he he could have been at some prior point, but certainly not at this point. Um, and and so I think that's a more a more interesting argument, but but people are a little shy to
0: make it. I think.
1: Mm-hmm. Matt, one of the things um, I love about your policy work is that uh, you sometimes uh, talk you you are able to talk about. Ah, uh, very practical kind of life cycle issues that make it less about the graphs and more about common sense thinking about how uh, people find a way to make ends meet. And one the area that I've repeated the most to my friends from your work is something you mentioned when you came to speak uh, at Harvard Law last year uh, earlier this year, where you said that a lot of the Uh, ways that people fall out of the economy uh, are during the ages of 18 to 25 and that we need to think up a way to uh, make like find a way to make sure that people are are shepherded into uh, a track that will make uh, them part of the economy or else they'll find their way in a track like prison that doesn't work so some people go to the military some people go to college some people go to apprenticeships and you had some interesting policy ideas about how to tackle the like 18 to 25 hole. Um, and i'd love to hear you probably could speak to it much more eloquently than i did in the setup so i'd love to hear your thoughts on that
2: yeah so i have a kind of holistic uh uh view that is in many ways borrowed from the nordic welfare states uh of you know, human development from, from age zero to, to age 25, uh, or from age zero to labor force entry. Uh, and you know, one big aspect of the welfare state and, and maybe the biggest aspect after old age retirement benefits should be, you know, enabling a very smooth transition, uh, now I wouldn't say transition, enabling a smooth childhood from start to finish, right? So when you're born, your parents have a few months off or in some cases, more than a year off to to take care of you directly, and they don't have to worry about income because that's provided uh, by the state through paid leave. Uh, then after the paid leave period is up, you have child care from you know age one to age three. That's going to be guaranteed affordable, maybe even free, you know if possible. Then once you hit age three, you have free pre-K through, uh, through college, if you make it that far. Uh, and then during that whole period, you also will get free health care. You're going to get a, a check in the mail each month called a child allowance. And off you go. And then you hit age 18, and the goal at that point is really labor force attachment. And we have different paths for you, and all those paths need to be socially supported. So one path is we're going to go through college and then uh, at the end of college you have these career offices and they really help allocate you into companies and then uh, if you're not through college you need to have something very similar to that but you know through non-college mechanisms Um, so uh, in other countries they'll call these active labor market policies Um, but one way to think about it is you know uh, a career office at a school but why not a career office you know, not at a school for, for, for everyone who can you know, go into the career office and that career office is contacts employers, knows what spots need to be filled, are able to sort people into those spots and are able to direct people into vocational training, apprenticeships, um, or for some people who want to just get going, you can get them straight into a, a pretty like, low-paying, low-level job. And provide them some what are called in-work subsidies, just some income subsidies while they're going at a young age, uh, in order to get them kind of to that next step uh, in the in the job ladder. Um, all of those mechanisms are are typically used. Um, and but yeah, but but generally, get wrapping your head around the framework of you know it is the job of society as a whole to get people from birth into the labor market successfully. Um, that, I think, is a key, is a key uh, you know, thing that we have to get people to, to believe in uh, in order to avoid a lot of negative uh, social outcomes.
1: Yeah, I love that. One of my hobby horses is that we, we misunderstand college as being mostly about education when it's mostly about institutionalization onto a path. You know, people say, oh, people in college are doing good because of what they learn in college, but you hardly learn anything in college. It's that you're placed in an institution that cares for you and directs you, liberates you from your parents, you know, and um, and then like sets you with a career office on a path afterwards, gets you straight. The military also does this. You know, we think the military is mostly about, you know, what you're doing there, but it's it's. To many people, it's about, I, I don't know what to do right now, I'm 18, you know, let me go join. I get to have new experiences, diverse people, and I get set into that labor, like what you're calling, I guess, labor force attachment. And um, just finding ways that people that don't fall into those things, finding other alternatives is, is so so brilliant. So thank you for, for working on that. <laughs>
0: Matt, uh, final uh, question, I'll make it a big, a big uh, softball kind of thing. As the older guy on the call by quite a bit, I, I am just struck every day by the way uh, a certain word is being redefined, and that word is socialism. Um, it, it seems to me that the, the, the good thing that's going on here is that maybe uh, since, you know, the, the younger generation, as you're called, don't have the same kinds of historical associations Uh, probably misassociations often with this term. It's now turned into something very vague. It's turned into something about social ownership that actually I think is yet to be defined. Um, And I wonder if you're finding this to be helpful, an obstacle, or maybe you can't tell at this point.
2: I think it's mostly helpful. Um, I think softening up the that edge uh yeah. is is useful and I, I actually don't know why it's happened in part i wonder if the uh um, republican abuse of the term has yeah. Yeah. people you know if it's like well obama is socialist it's like well you know most young people liked obama so
0: right
2: i, I yeah, guess yeah, we like course. socialism uh uh <laughs> So I don't, I, yeah, I don't know why it's happened, but I think opening uh, people up a little bit more to to the to the certain ideas that are, you know, w- would conventionally be on on the socialist edge, but are are fairly practical and and exist in one form or another in in other countries or even in our own uh, on some on some levels. Um, is useful. I think, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it, 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 not being able to shut down some idea like like a social wealth fund or, um, you know, uh, worker co-determination where workers have representation on, on corporate boards and other stuff like that. Not being able to just shut that down directly as, well, that's a socialist uh, idea and so is, is on its face absurd and, and should be rejected. Uh, I think that that's useful. And... And to the extent that the word is, I don't know, watered down, I I, I just don't see what the negative implication of that that is. Uh, You know, uh, you'll need to convince people who are open to the word that your particular ideas are good, regardless of whether or not they uh, now use the word more expansively.
0: Yeah. Matt, that's great. Thank you very much for sitting in with us this morning. Um, Great to have you here. Pete, thanks for joining us, too. Thanks and for having We'll it. look forward to reconnecting. And everybody, let's give the URL for uh, People's Public Policy Project. Uh, Matt, let me make sure we get it right. Would you give that, please?
2: Yes, it's peoplespolicyproject.org. Uh, and you can, of course, just search People's Policy Project. Um, and if you go to the website on the right sidebar, there's a link to the Patreon where you can become a, a sponsor if, if you are so inclined.
0: Excellent. Onward. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye.